songs of the battle where carrion birds dwell. Should they be allowed in the house of Ravel? And welcome back to House of Revels, the Theatre Through the Ages podcast. I'm Mingma. And I'm Livia. And we are theatre practitioners taking you on a journey through the history of theatre in Britain. From naught to now. Each episode we discuss a different theatre style, its context, origin and form, and then we score said theatre style in four different categories. Finally, we decide whether this style deserves to join the illustrious House of Revels, the great and noble hall where only the best of British theatre resides. This is episode six, and we are discussing Songs of Praise, Norman Conquest. Ooh! Ooh. Okay, this is our first um, pun Tit- punly titled episode click click baiting for all of those um <laughs> radio four listeners <laughs> yeah click Is it radio four i don't know it's something <laughs> all right uh so last episode we brought ourselves up to the battle of hastings we're back into history from whence most people vaguely think history started yeah i think <laughs> basically basic. i mean everyone knows is it Hastings, the insurance company, when they're like, oh, wait, 100 double O, 1066. 1066. Yeah, that yeah. one. So we're there. We're right back at yeah, 1066. 1066. So the context. So this is where we discuss the current day events. As this form developed, what else was going on in history? What economic, social, political movements might affect performance? I feel like there's going to be quite a lot of context. So yeah. give yes. it to me briefly, Mingma. Brief context. <laughs> Brief. Let's not make this half uh, half of our recording session as it has happened before. <laughs> An elevator pitch of the Battle of Hastings. Go. So Emma of Normandy had a son who she ignored for ages and ages, and then eventually he became. Um, he lived in France until he was forty. Eventually came back, took the took the British throne. There's a lot of theories that he's either gay or afraid or afraid of sex, and so never has a child, never consummates his marriage, and so there is oh concession crisis. At this time, there is an incredibly powerful family called the Godwinsons, who are top earls of the kingdom. They're basically the right hand men, kingmakers if you will okay and also there is duke william of normandy who uh edward the confessor knew before he came back to england to take the throne also fun fact about edward edward the confessor he was the one who founded westminster abbey oh that is a fun fact yeah basically what happened was that there was a particular moment when harold godwinson Mm-hmm. was the presumed heir for a long time for uh, the ki- uh, for the king which is Harold Godwinson was the son of the main earl and um, he, he was clearly favoured by Edward the Confessor all this kind of stuff and then at one point he was captured by William in Normandy and Duke William extracts a promise on the Bible from Harold that he will support William's claim to the throne to such a time as he would uh, he he might go for the throne. This is also while Edward is still alive. And uh, it's a whole thing about the Normans then justified saying, well, he's an oath breaker because uh, in the end, Harold does take the throne and becomes Harold II. Mm. Um, and it's a whole thing of, was he an oath breaker or did you force it out of him under duress yeah. and therefore how much of an oath do you actually... Yeah, it's not know? really true if you have to force it out of someone. Yeah. 
Exactly. Okay, so we've got Edward the Confessor, Virgin yes. King. We've got Harold, later Harold II. He's been captured by um, William of Normandy, made to swear yeah. on an oath, on a Bible. Then what happens? All that, then Edward the Confessor dies and Harold is crowned king, Harold II. Mm-hmm. And everyone seems pretty happy in England. Of course, William is furious and starts building ships to come and invade England. Probably should be mentioned that William, bloody hell, he had an awful childhood, including his guardians being murdered quite literally in his bed when they're trying to protect him from being murdered by his father's enemies. Oh my gosh. Messed up childhood, go somewhere else to find out more, but yes. Oh, <laughs> okay. I think Freud would have some fun with this one. Yeah, that does sound <laughs> like he's got some issues. William the Conqueror is gathering on the shores of Normandy with his boats, and, and in medieval times there was very much a campaigning season. You only campaign during the summer because in the winter the food disappears. Autumn, you know, if you get dug into a campaign, all your men will starve. So if you wanted to go on a jolly old war, mm. it's spring and summer. And in August, when William was intending to sail, uh, there was rains and fog, and it was just awful. You just you should not try and cross the channel during that time. Okay. And uh, so Harold is sitting there waiting, 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 waiting for. for um, William to appear mm-hmm. and he's not and he's not and he's not and the end of the campaigning season is appearing so what's going to happen and then suddenly completely out of the blue the Vikings invade oh in, great in, nor- in northern England and Harold does one of the most successful marches in military history in England where in four days he gets men from London to York walking Ooh. okay um, and it's so successful that um, Viking warriors had no idea that he was even in London. Basically, they, they thought that he was still on the coast waiting for William. He had got to London, he had got all the troops together and got to York before they had any idea that he had been in London. Uh, that he'd even in London. been... Gosh. So completely took them by surprise. It was a complete rout. It's one of the most successful marches in our history. And like complete success. And then at the kind of success... Uh, feast up in York a messenger bursts in and says William has invaded oh for that poor man oh, he's yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry Harold you've had a whole yes. hard time of it <laughs> literally though and so then he repeats the march in four days he gets all the men back down into oh. London uh oh can you imagine just how like the stress and the tiredness and no. uh, and it's written that he was exhausted and ill when he got back I'm not surprised and when he got back to London his brother said do not go out to meet him mm. you're in London you can hole up he'll starve during the winter and we can go off and do something else and we can, you know or let me go and like, lead the troops because you are the king if you die we're screwed yeah Whereas if, you know, if I die, I'm expendable. And also you can get a new army, you can, uh, yeah. all that kind of stuff. But Harold refused. Uh, and so he went out to meet William. And with an army who had done these incredibly strenuous marches up and down the north of England in the last week. Mm. Including in a very, very tiring and, you know, forceful battle. And goes out to meet William and is defeated. I mean, he sounds like he... It probably was a combination of he was riding on the hive, just having a really successful win. So he thought he was invincible. But also, mm. you're not thinking clearly. You're exhausted. You're just... It's just a battle. Like I think the other thing to make a point is that nowadays we think of 1066 as this kind of inevitable moment. Mm. You know, that this is the end. You know, that, that that is just what happened. The Normans were going to come. They were always going to win. But it was incredibly close. 
and even the Norman sources at the time say this and and actually the victory shook and the victory and how much of a kind of complete moment it was shook Europe mm. this complete change that it all on this knife edge and it was very very close for most of the battle and there was a moment when um uh when everyone thought William was dead and so his soldiers were running away which is normally the most fatal moment it's really interesting once you look at the sources just like we think yeah. of this as being inevitable but actually it's so on a knife edge and how did because i read somewhere that harold got shot in the eye with an arrow and that's mm. how he died is that is that true oh i did an essay on this <laughs> <laughs> i actually did um i'm so pleased <laughs> so the only source about the being shot in the eye mm. is the biotapestry Okay. The way the biotapestry works is that you have kind of like the main events being shown mm-hmm. in the um, in the main bit, and then above there's symbolic, and below is symbolic. So you have like cre- mythical creatures and dead men and this kind of stuff. If you imagine like old-fashioned tape film, mm-hmm. you have like the main bit, and then you have like little images above and below. It's literally that. Okay. Um, and in the main images, they have the text saying what happens, and there's a bit which says Hick Harold. Mortarum, or I can't remember the last word. Uh, but basically, it says here Harold dies. But there are three figures under that. Basically, the one with being shot in the eye is the one in the middle, and so it makes sense. But also, Hick is above someone else, so Hick could be here. Mm. And Hick, and I think that most consensus now is actually that he was effectively he was unhorsed and then shot to pieces. Ooh. But again, how much do we know? Yeah. How much is yeah? Okay. Uh, either way, he died. And the other point is why it was such a rout was because after this Viking invasion, they'd already lost a couple of people, but he also had all of his lords together and all of them died at this one battle. Well, no, I mean, you know, there were dregs left, but it was basically they completely creamed the entirety of the Anglo-Saxon nobility right. in one battle. Okay. Which again was stupid by Harold. Why would you bring them yeah. all? Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, he has a successful battle and then he has a really stupid, just silly, silly moments. I guess he's only human. I mean, how would we know? But, you know, for the few months he was on the throne, he seemed like a decent king. Yeah. You know, got his currency out, you know, which showed that there was stability, that he mm. had enough time to press coins and this kind of stuff. They won and then London caved incredibly fast, which is interesting as well. Normally there's a whole thing, especially during the Wars of the Roses later on, Mm. that the city of London, you know, that kind of weird anachronism in London of of the city, um, that they have so much power that quite often they would shut their gates to the conquering monarch as such. And so there are a lot of times later on where people would be coming and say, Oi, I I need to get crowned. They, no mate, you're not coming in here. Nope, no, (laughs) no. Uh, but William came to London and the, and the gates were open. So the elders of the, of the city allowed him through, uh, which is really interesting because mm. if they had shut the gates, he would have been forced to stay outside in winter. And perhaps, perhaps the nobles would have succeeded in getting another army together and defeating, mm. perhaps. Who would have been? Anyway, yeah. but he was, yeah, he was crowned in Westminster Abbey in 1066, Christmas Day. Ah, oh, nice and festive. Mm to give the final kind of this is not brief at all but to give the final (laughs) part of all of this is this really was a tyrannical rule this was an invasion and it was a suppression unlike when vikings came in and vikings were uh, though very aggressive when they first arrived they wanted to amalgamate in a certain way whereas this was absolutely an imposition of a different culture on a different people this is this is colonialism Mm. 
invading a different territory and absolutely kind of dominating into an empire of some sort. Mm. English was replaced by Latin and Norman French as the language of court and the language of church and the language of court as in legal and court as in royal. Yeah. Uh, out goes Anglo-Saxon slavery. Yay. Uh, but um, in comes the feudal system, which, to be honest, is worse. Okay. Um, How? Because... Explain to me the feudal system. The feudal system is basically a triangle. I don't know why I'm doing it in the... Anyway, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm doing an image of a triangle and yeah. that isn't going to help anyone apart from live in front of me. But so, we also uh... all know what a triangle is, so you don't have to yes. demonstrate it. Don't worry, Mimu. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. It's just like, why? Why am I even... Uh, right. So so at the top of the triangle is the king. Mm. Mm. It's the king, the dukes, the earls, the something, the baronets, the knights. You know, there's kind of like oh, a yeah. ranking of lordship and this kind of stuff. That comes from the Normans. Okay. And uh, in that, like, the, the church kind of has a similar thing, which is on the side, you know, so priests, vicars, and then, like, the bishop is the same level as an earl mm. and the, all this kind of stuff. And basically, you make this triangle, and then down at the very bottom bottom are the serfs in Russian. But I can't remember what the word is. Basically, you get to a point where there are certain people who are at the lowest of the low, the peasants, mm. the peasantry, who are uh, indentured to land. So all the land of England is carved up into this cycle. So the king has the greatest amount of land, then he gives some to, to the dukes who were most important to him. And then the dukes... Und- underneath the dukes they might have two earls and the two earls might have three knights each who then report to him who then report to him mm. so it ends up as a kind of as a triangle of power pyramid scheme yeah <laughs> um and eventually you get to the level of the knight who has his castle and he has 200 peasants who are uh, not allowed to leave his his land without his permission he is allowed to uh have sex with any of their um <laughs> any woman on her marriage night if she is one of his peasants uh, basically he says you are allowed to um, work on my land and all the produce which you make for, from, from my land I take however because I'm a nice person I'm going to give you like a tiny tiny little stretch of a tiny bit of land in one other field which is much more stony and you can use that to uh, grow your own stuff for your own family mm. so suddenly Everything was to do with land rights and land property, and everyone was was forced into this system. And there was nothing like this before of this kind of thing of going. You have to stay here, and you are effectively owned by the land and whoever then owns this land. Mm. The biggest example of this in terms of the reign of power is is I call it attrition by architecture. <laughs> Which is that the Normans literally just started building castles and it was a complete Mm. symbol of power. And we still have some of them today. Dover Castle, the Whitechapel in in the Tower of London is a Norman castle. The great cathedrals, Durham, Ely, Salisbury, nearly all were started by Normans. Um, Ely in particular, right right in William the Conqueror's reign. And again, it was this thing of saying, look at this completely new style of architecture which is imposing onto the land, saying, we are here, we own mm. this. Like bit, like putting your flag in type thing, but with a building. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. I mean, uh, have you ever done the train ride to Edinburgh Fringe? No, I am a cheapskate and only ever go by coach. <laughs> uh, well, oh. uh, <laughs> yeah, well I went... Well, if anyone has been to Edinburgh, there's a moment when you go to go through Durham and you uh, come out of the station and then suddenly you're hit 
by Durham Cathedral. And it's such a kind of amazing moment, but it gives you this idea of just the amount of propaganda they were using in building these stone castles. Also, stone had not been a thing really before now. There were still pools, if we're going back to that. <laughs> still pools. So this is pools. So all the stone comes in. Okay. I can I can see that. Final bits quickly. He came in. He never really wanted to spend much time in England. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, he tried to stay in Normandy as much as possible because that was his home. But you know, got the t- as many taxes as he wanted. The Doomsday Book was a tax book. It was him saying, "I want to quantify how much everyone has in this land, so I know how much tax I can take from it." Right. This was the level of of um, <laughs> new kind of control. He also, when the North resisted, he uh, harried the North, the harrying of the North, which is quite a famous episode, yeah. which was when he came he burnt he pillaged and he salted the earth which means he literally scattered salt so nothing could grow yeah no so they'd starve this is the tyrant who is now in charge of england anyway you know you can see see i'm thoroughly on the side of the anglo-saxons here (laughs) i mean yeah final bit which is just when when william died he split his land in two so one his his favored son got normandy and the second son henry got england and the third son got zilch he got fifty thousand pounds oh my gosh a bit like king lear then very like king lear well it's interesting because it's him and then henry the second also disastrously does the king lear and i always thought that king lear was based on henry the second but it's interesting that Mm. this happened as well but the final bits, which is just kind of like my own little vengeance on him, so that's why I need to say it. Um, when he died, people didn't take care of his body and preservation and this kind of stuff. So in the middle of his funeral, his stomach burst. Oh, my God. He just exploded <laughs> during yeah, death. Yeah, so the smell was so bad. Oh. They, had, they literally just had to kind of like shovel him into anything just oh to get God. out. So very undignified uh, death for William the Conqueror. That's so, so, I mean, karma comes round, karma. but that's like... <laughs> Your body exploding. Okay, so we have the Battle of Hastings, William the Conqueror coming over, defeating Harold II. After Harold's had a very successful battle with the Vikings, then we've got William coming over from Normandy, spreading Norman French, making Norman French and Latin the kind of Mm. language of the court. He implements the feudal system uh, and basically peasants are attached to land so they can't move. He builds loads of castles everywhere. Uh, he brings in stone, which was a new thing, which I didn't, yeah, I didn't really realise that that was I, in my head we were already using stone but I guess that makes sense. I mean, so there are some buildings which definitely were used and were, were mm. um, stone made. Stone, yeah. yeah. <laughs> At this time, but this particular very gothic basically okay. architecture was entirely new the new way of doing it and the new kind of yeah okay uh yeah so he builds all these castles and then he dies he explodes he gives <laughs> he splits his land in two and gives um one part to two of his sons and then leaves his third son nothing okay that feels like everything um so moving on to origins so this is the section where we discuss the origins of the theatre style. We trace its beginnings and what influenced its development. This can also include, I'm imagining, stuff going on in other countries. I feel like we said at the beginning, uh, we're not going to do stuff in other countries and then it's so interlaced that we're always talking about other countries, but here we are. Well, I think I think we said at the very mm. beginning as uh, more that we are going to study theatre styles 
you know, we're going to dedicate episodes to theatre styles which happened in this country, yeah. but in Origins, we should talk about, exactly. obviously, people getting influenced. Yeah, there's so, a whole... I feel... We're not, <laughs> as we talked about, um, I think we've talked about a couple of times, like, it's really difficult to think of England or, or Great Britain in isolation. Like, we're still, mm. you know, with Canute, we're part of this North Sea Empire, with um, the Norman, <clears throat> with William the Conqueror, we're part of the, I'm guessing, the Normandy Empire, so to speak. Was it? Mm. Was it just... Normandy in England that William the Conqueror had power over or pretty much but Normandy was twice the size at this time okay so it's still pretty so big so it's enormous we need to remember it's interesting that really for us the one one of the things William gave is effectively the island was united apart from Scotland being Scotland mm-hmm. um but the rest of, you know, but the rest of us were completely completely united and have been since and so it, we need to remember that when we talk about other countries, for example, France, France mm. was half the size of what it was now. Mm. Germany didn't, Italy didn't exist until the 1870s. So in terms of our current understanding of what a country is. Yeah. So when we use these terms, they won't necessarily, the borders will not be the same as they are now. Yeah. So mm. exactly. Anyway, I got on a tangent then. Yeah. Origins. So how did the Songs of Praise theatre style <laughs> originate? praise song it is literally called praise song we're not entirely it's not it's not a complete joke it is a pun no so this is a particular style which is um telling events okay to begin with goodbye mimi and gleeman from the anglo-saxons the gleeman were were effectively the old saxon scalds Mm. you know we spoke again about how everything got interlinked and difference all the rest of it gleeman are effectively scalds which are they sit at court and they are the fools they're the ones who kind of tell the stories and this stuff um, their position is very much taken by Norman min- minstrels who are called jongleers and this kind of stuff. Mm. Um, there are a lot of different names for minstrels at this time. I think I'm going to use jongleer mostly here, just so we have some differentiation, because I'm going to use troubadour for a, a later on episode. Okay, <laughs> okay save <laughs> so it up. Jongleers. Um, the Mimi, who are the mimes, mm-hmm. who've been around god knows how long now you know, yeah. a thousand years or so they're <laughs> doing well uh they were less um totally related to the court mm-hmm. already they're already much more the middle class and the middle and the lower classes form of, forms of entertainment so they probably weren't as affected and impacted as uh, the gleeman were yeah. at least at the initial stages uh and can we just have a, like imagine the wonderful little happy ever after world where these two groups join together to make a whole new thing we know nothing about to make a little rap company and they're like well we've yeah. got loads of knowledge about this area and you've got knowledge of roads <laughs> um I, i'd like to imagine that but i probably i imagine it was probably a doggy dog world to be honest Mingmo, in this norman in this norman life so why can't everyone be happy <laughs> because of william the conqueror <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm such a bad rap. He wasn't all... Well, no, he, he was pretty bad. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so in terms of their legacy as well, just to give a kind of final goodbye to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, not really. They, they pop up about 300 years later, but... Um, we have in their kind of dying breaths the poems of Hereward the Wake and the mutations of the Arthurian legend. Though Arthur in particular gets swallowed and adopted by the Normans mm. into their kind of myth and French kind of poetry and this stuff. Um, 
but Harrowed the Wake is a story about a character in around Ely who fought against William and lived in the marshes and was this great kind of heroic figure who, who then was heroically defeated. You know, that kind of glorious thing yeah. of the hero who... But you still sing the song. And I think the fact we still have evidence of these poems and this kind of stuff after the Normans invaded, this was about their, you know, about rebellions afterwards, is testament to how popular those kind of stories were. Mm. Goodbye then. Bye-bye. Really, really not much influence if anyone was wondering on (laughs) on what's going on. So first off is Frankish poems. Uh, So in the proem... With the... With an R? With an R, with an actual R. Okay. Um, oh God, this, this is going to sound so nerdy, but I only discovered this word properly mm. um, two nights ago when I was reading Paradise Lost. <laughs> oh. I know. It's so awful. No, I had a moment when I was I was reading with a, a dramatic reading of Paradise Lost with a few people. Right. And um, I played Eve in The Fool. And I had to speak about so, so, glozed, so glozed the serpent uh, in his proem. There were two words in there. I was like, what, the, what is this? Serpent, I'm with, yeah. yeah. So proem... So proem means introduction to your main speech. Okay. So it's quite often the... Well, Shakespeare, two households, both alike in dignity. Mm-hmm. Fair Verona, where we lay our scene. <laughs> so yes, a proem. So in the proem of the Song of the Battle of the Hastings, which is going to be our, our play, as it is for this, for this episode, mm-hmm. there was written... Placeant cum carmina multis, which means that this piece was written since songs please the multitude. Okay, so it's written to please people. Yes. And so people. what basically they're saying that it, uh, that writing songs of events is very popular in Frankish in Francia in this in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, so Frankish means French, but it's ancient French. Mm. There's a famous Frankish song called Chio dit la geste a Saint Richia, which is a song celebrating the victory of Louis III over the Normans at Saucourt in 881. And it was known to be still very popular in mainland Europe and popular even though it's now been translated into Latin, not the old Frankish it was originally written in. So clearly, remember that we're having this kind of massive imposition of European culture into England now. Mm. And this popularity of songs and of telling events and this kind of stuff uh, is coming through. So hymns of battle were popular. Next origin is the Carolingian poets. Okay. Mm. They sound fancy. <laughs> mm. Yeah, very fancy. Uh, Carolingian basically means the, sh- the, the empire of Charlemagne, which was just before the Vikings started invading Europe properly. It's interesting, like every 200 years in European history at this point, there seems to be a renaissance of some sort. We're suddenly learning virgins and all the rest of it. Mm. And then dark days, then... Virgin yeah. days. <laughs> Another theme tune for us. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> so the poem of Earl Moldus on the deeds of Louis the Pious in two great wars in Spain and France contain a lot of parallels. And literally, it looks like complete copyright of some of the poems that have come out now, where they're almost copying exactly the same words but changing it a bit. Okay. Like all of us pretending we haven't used wiki in our essays. <laughs> Hmm. 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 and also a character who we're going to talk about more called Taelfer sings the song of Roland um, in the Battle of Hastings so clearly again songs and this kind of stuff is very popular telling the songs of deeds great deeds this is relevant to tracing structure but it seems that a lot of these poems are quite structurally similar to classical Roman in particular um, mm. plays and this thing and we do know that a lot of the monasteries of this of the Carolingian era so we're still at this time had works of Pliny of Cicero of Virgil of Suetonius 
And so if we're looking at structures and this kind of thing, quite often that's been translated into the Carolingian, which then translates into this style. Complete sidebar here, but it's a... Um, do you think that nowadays playwrights really think about structure? I think so. I think we don't even realise... I think yes is the short answer. Because I think we think about structure in both ways, both following structure and also leaving structure behind. Like the whole five-act structure, three-act structure, it feeds our soul. I can't, I can't think of anything more substantial to say. It feeds our soul. <laughs> no, but it's, it's pleasing when you have that resolution. Like if you think about the, I can't remember what it is, it's like the seven types of story of like, there's like the hero. You know, the, there's like seven types of story which every kind of story fits into. Yeah, I heard 24, but yes. Oh, maybe it's 24. Maybe when we just did it, it was seven. But um, mm. So I think there is a... I think playwrights do follow yeah. structure. I think it's a... The main thing for me is that I don't think nowadays we really, really go to the minute eye detail that these people did in terms of structure. And also, I think quite often it helped the, the, the teller. Mm. Uh, the speaker but it's uh, think about the Vikings we did so far and like the mathematical precision yeah. of how how structured it was and then you know Dante's Inferno later on the Terra, the terra Rimza structure of exactly how the lines should interweave and yeah I mean the kind of... I'd say that modern day structure it's kind of quite loose in terms of like you vaguely follow these points to make a good story but no it's mm. not like you know when you play that game where you go around in a circle and it's like one day every other day since that day it's not like that it's not structure as in it has to be a certain form I don't think yeah so I would say not we're not as structured as they were seemingly in the no, olden times I think so I think so I don't know it's interesting because mm -hmm. I think uh here's, here's again sidebar but whenever I write I always I, I do think that having a structure and having a constraint really helps yeah. create something good. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting kind of point about well, modern day versus this versus... Well, yeah. it's that thing of you get... Um, it's not the truth will set you free, but you have freedom from structure. Like, if I said mm. to you, write a play, you've got to write a play. You can do about anything you like, write it in any style. It's overwhelming. Mm. But if I said to you, write a play about um, two teenage boys trapped in an underground bunker, like... You mm. would go, right, I know exactly what to do. Um, maybe not, but like the thing of actually that's so comforting. I think structure is security and I mean it goes back to the age old question of the need for humans for freedom versus security and I mean I'm getting to pop psychology here, <laughs> but that, that mm. idea of we crave freedom but actually we need security. Anyway. Yes, maybe. Yeah. Huh. Lockdowns. <laughs> Lockdown. It's too much. <laughs> it's too oh. much. Um, anyway, okay. The final element is the Vikings. William and the Normans very much did come from vi good Viking stock. Normandy does mean land of Norsemen. And most argue that because a lot of these authors of this particular style are priests, uh, they wouldn't have any heathen sources and all the rest of it. But the king, he probably at least was involved in the commissioning of this literally comes from viking stock so i'm just i'm just going to put it out there there's at least culturally there's going to be something there where they are you know where there's a transfer so we've got frankish poetry carolingian poetry we've got this idea of renaissance going back to old things we've got classical uh and we've got the idea of uh northman normandy and the Norse Northman Normandy. Northman Normandy and the Viking influence. Okay, so 
Moving on to the main event then, Mingma Hughes. The, mm. I'm so pumped. I am so pumped for a theatre style. I'm ready to get back to theatre. <laughs> Let's sing a song. Well, after far too much history. Too no, much history it's not too much history. I'm just like, oh, give me a stage. Give me a song. Give me a stage. Give me yeah, a spotlight. So okay. Right. So, it. It is praise poetry, I think is probably the best way of describing this style. Mm. It's a combination, I would say, really of kind of Viking skaldic poetry and this classical style of telling great events. Think Aeneid, think Mm -hmm. Odyssey, think this kind of stuff. There are often long passages of rhetoric in it. So basically what happens is that it tells an event and it's told in a way they hope that the the general minstrels will pick up and sing in pubs, people will hear it, Mm. they'll think it's catchy, so the story will live. Again, think about this idea of living history Mm. and the fact that history doesn't matter. You want things to be popular, yeah. Exactly. Uh, also, we, I probably should put like a tiny asterisk in here saying that we call it praise poetry or praise poets, but again, the idea of a theatre style just doesn't exist now. No. This is this is me conglomerating about a hundred years of people doing stuff yeah. into one boy. Mm-hmm. Though they're trying to tell historical events, there are quite often long passages of rhetoric, uh, which really seem to prove I'm a really cool author and I can write cool imagery. <laughs> Oh. You know, there's kind of so, so there's clearly something going on here that you know, they're enjoying writing yeah. it in a so Emoldus Nigellus was an exponent of the style recently nicknamed L'Ecole Pittoresque so uh, which I think literally the school of the picturesque mm. I suppose and more authors in a similar kind of style include Adalbero the Bishop of Leon and Fulco of Beauvoir who wrote the Epistula okay <laughs> which sounds quite wrong <laughs> so Again, it's mostly religious people writing this. Mm. And I think there's also the interesting point that I wonder how much of this was for the first time written down and then taught to people rather than people composing them and then them being write, write, written down for their popularity. Mm. I think I think there's a change over here going on of, of like very, very clear, I am an author, I've written this, and you all now distribute. Yes. So that's so that's a difference again from um, Beowulf. Yeah. And from, you know, these, uh, in general, this style is written in Latin. Yay. So it isn't Roman Latin, it is a weird medieval variant. Oh, um, why are there so many languages? Yeah, don't ask me what the difference is, but there is a difference. Okay. Ask the experts. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So the final little fun point mm. is that this is a theatre style, undoubtedly. It is quite often, they're nearly all called songs, Carmen. So normally called the Song of Roland or the Song of the Battle of Hastings or the Song of This or the Song of That. And uh, there are stage directions in the songs because, of course, this is poetry and we've, we've lost the music which went with them. Someone has done a great study on medieval song manuscripts. And so whenever we do look at medieval song sta- manuscripts in our spare time, um, uh, we should notice when, when we're doing this as our great hobby uh, that a semicolon is often used as a stage direction to lower your voice. So you're in the middle of singing and if you see it, then you know it's like a dynamic to change it and this kind of stuff. And there's a lot in the text, kind of like Shakespeare did, which is stage directions. That's cool. Mm-hmm. That's going to be useful for you as well when you want to <laughs> quickly do some annotating on your singing. You're like, semicolon, it's actually a medieval reference. I'm going to put it in. <laughs> First day of rehearsals. <laughs> okay, to sum up then, um, we have this idea of the change from... Uh, writing something down because it's become popular to actually taking 
own ownership of your authorship and writing something and not just kind of describing the events as we say these are kind of event songs and event poems but also putting in the kind of nice glory details of you know a nice description I don't know of a lake that was near the battle or something it's the improviser who just doesn't um uh who just can't stay in the background and just let events happen (laughs) they're like and then this happened to bring me to the spotlight because I am talented. <laughs> oh, my God. oh, that's what it is. It's a tag. It's a really aggressive tag. <laughs> like a series of repeated tags into a scene going, and this yeah. Bill's here. And everyone's yeah. like, Phil, we don't need you in this scene. Anyway, yes, the idea of taking ownership of authorship. That's a really weird phrase. I don't know why I keep using it. Mm. But authorship kind of... I liked it. It was very. I cool. know it was quite. It was quite off the cuff. Anyway, um, Latin's stage directions. For example, the semicolon uh, to indicate singing quieter. <laughs> singing quieter. Okay, moving on then to our example play. This is the Carmen de Hastinge Prolio, or um, otherwise known as Carmen Widonis. It's one of those weird things where. There aren't actually titles for these very, very old manuscripts, but then people get the, give them nicknames. Like we said before, the person who owned the manuscript ended up nicknaming Beowulf or mm. you know, the Noral Codex or that thing's happening again. We, we nicknamed it yeah, this. Yeah, we changed it that way. So this song, Carmen meaning song, literally it's called song in the title. Because I've just said titles to... Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh... This piece is attributed to Guy, Bishop of Amiens, and was very likely written in haste for Easter celebrations in England in 1067. Now, Liv, when was uh, William the Conqueror crowned? Uh, Christmas Day, Mingwa. Christmas Day. And what date? Uh, 1066. It's the same year. Three months later. This is right. Gosh. You know, it's funny because for a split second there, when you said in haste, I, <laughs> I was like, she either means very quickly all she means in a place called haste related to hastings <laughs> and i just like i don't know which one she means <laughs> like i know what I, know. I was like no there can't be a place called haste near hastings yeah. but it could be uh, yeah. anyway so it was written within the three month period between uh, 1066 and easter 1067. Seven. Seven. Part of the reason why this is so significant, it is so recent to events. Mm. Yeah, so the Battle of Hastings and um, and his coronation, it's all within a year. Most of our manuscripts or people talking about an event, it's normally 70 years later or something like that. And this is this is within months of by someone who actually saw the event. It's quite extraordinary when you there's also evidence of revisions in it. So like different versions, mistakes, um, some of the rhyming doesn't work. Oh. Or clearly it was sloppy. And that was again clearly we need a celebration piece for the Easter of our new king. Shit, 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 shit. <laughs> I'd say that this is probably the, the most accurate we have, just because it was an eyewitness. And you you will know this is a victory thing, and almost certainly it was commissioned by a Norman in order to spread the word of our great new king. Mm. But with that in mind, this is going to be the most accurate because it was the most close to the events itself. Mm. Okay. Of the sources we still have. Yeah. Yeah, so this is the earliest record of the Battle of Hastings. And uh, what's interesting, though, is that it's rarely looked at as a piece of literature because there are so few sources on the Battle of Hastings. It is always kind of commandeered by the historians going, mine, it is accurate (laughs) because I need sources. (laughs) And it isn't looked at as this is is poetry, this is fiction, this is a performance. Mm. 
This was intended with music to be played in pubs. And interestingly, actually, Guy of Amiens, or whoever wrote it, but most people think it's Guy of Amiens, uh, his spelling of English places and names was surprisingly good because quite often the Europeans had trouble. And so there's interestingly, whoever wrote this knew enough about England to know basically how to spell most things. Mm. So maybe, so, I mean, he'd only presumably been here for like three months. Trade, they might have been here for long. Mm. I mean, I, I don't actually know Guy of Amiens' um, history that much. And again, he might have been talking to people, but it is an interesting point. Okay, so it's the song of the Battle of Hastings. It was written in three months mm. um, <laughs> in haste for the uh, Easter Mass. That's basically it. So moving on to scoring then. We score every theatre style in four separate categories. Sleight of hand, scandal, ripple or riot and legacy. We each give a score out of 10 for each category, leading to a maximum total of 80. Finally, we decide whether it deserves to enter the esteemed House of Revels. So the first category is sleight of hand. This is where we explore the stagecraft in this theatre style, the props, the tricks, the trapdoors. Yes, the sleight of hand. So I'm putting three things into this, and one of which is the whoop-ass characters. Okay. So the reason we're doing this episode is because I found one sentence about a certain character who sang songs at the Battle of Hastings. Right. And upon digging, it turned out this character was actually a character in the poem, the song of the Battle of Hastings. <laughs> this man so that was influential. <laughs> yes. And that is Tailfer. In popular culture, he is, I mean, popular culture, academic culture, people who think it's popular, um, <laughs> is said to have sung his heroic lays on the beaches at Pevensey in the vanguard of Williams's troops at the Battle of Hastings. So I thought, ooh, that sounds quite interesting. And that was where I started with all of this. In terms of sleight of hand, I'm just going to read uh, a translation paragraph from the Battle of Hastings, which is the story of Tailfer. Okay. From from the poem. Meantime, while the battle hung in ominous suspense and the dread scourge of death in war was pending, a player, whom his most valiant soul greatly ennobled, rode out before the countless army of the Duke. He heartened the men of France and terrified the English, and, tossing his sword high, he sported with it. A certain Englishman, when he saw a lone man out of so many thousands move at a distance, juggling with his sword, was fired with the ardour proper to a soldier's heart. Heedless of life, he sprang forward to meet his death. The mummer, surnamed Tailfer, as soon as he had been reached, pricked his horse with his spurs. He pierced the Englishman's shield with his keen lance and cued the head from the prostrate body with his sword. Turning his eyes on his comrades, he displayed his, this trophy and show that the beginning of the battle favoured them. Right. So he's not just some bard in the corner. <laughs> no. He's a full-on warrior. Well, fighter. Well, soldier. Soldier. He's a full-on soldier. It's an interesting point because I started this and I really, really wanted him to be the juggler who just happens to get a sword out and go, oh, whoops, oh, what, what can I say? My sword, I was juggling, and then it just kind of it fell on your head. I'm sorry. <laughs> but no. But, I mean, what's interesting is that it's clearly that Tailfoe was clearly a historical figure of some sort. But uh, I think there's some conflation going on here. Whereas I'm certain that there probably was players who were singing odes you know, to, to uh, the Duke's troops and this kind of stuff mm. and came over. And much as I hope, because this is a theatre podcast, that he was a mama, I'll put it out there. I think someone mistranslated their Latin. <laughs> <laughs> because Tailfer is only named, this character is only by name called Tailfer in this one source. Mm. No, no other kind of source mentions him as Tailfer. And I think this sounds more like a simile, that he is like a mama in his juggling. 
than fact. So I can I can fully see yeah. a minor a minor soldier or perhaps someone who's in charge of of a few of his men going, Oh, they're all terrified. I'm just gonna go out and play a bit of a fool to, you know, warm them up a bit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, oh look, I'm juggling my sword, aren't I cool men? Ho ho ho, are you ready to march into battle? Yeah. And then an Englishman comes up and he kills him. Yeah. I think that to me reads some as this is literally the primary sword, I think that reads more than the juggler who happens to be who happens to be <laughs> in a very serious battle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. Either way, I think it's a it shows just talk about amazing characters and imagery and just in that kind of tiny bit. Mm. And remember that this, that again, this isn't translated into poetry. This is translated into prose. So um, the poetry is so structured. And that's all in kind of, to give you an idea, this is the page which I took it from in the book. Uh, and you can just see how many more words we need to translate it from the Latin, which is incredibly regimented. Yeah. You know, so, so you can tell that the skill which would have been involved in getting all of that information into mm. this. And I, I'd also say that uh, for sleight of hand as well, mm. Uh, clearly there's a bit of exaggeration of some sort going on but it also shows the importance of storytellers like for the story the fact that a juggler's out there I can see why everyone ran with it as an idea yeah <laughs> you know talk about an image of kind of the Battle of Hastings that a guy's going and I'm the I'm the warm up act with my sword <laughs> I feel that guy is me but instead of stabbing people I would just go that's me done I hope you enjoyed tonight's set now I leave you all to die yeah um <laughs> yeah that being said also there is a uh yeah again this isn't really theater but it's also I quite like mm-hmm. it which is that uh Wace who's who's a Norman poet who was writing about 50 years after the Battle of Hastings and brought in this story I think he's one of the first people who then says oh Tailfair definitely was there and was doing mm-hmm. x y and z as, as a mama um, and in his poem, which is called Romain de Rour, uh, he says, uh, I'm going to read the French first and then the English translation, because why the hell not? Do it! Just, just keep on embarrassing myself. Telfer qui mui buen chantu, so un cheval qui tos alu, devant le duc alors chantant, de Carlemagne et de Roland, et d'Oliver et de Vassal, qui morimont en reservals. I think even with my butchered accent French, you can hear the rhyming. Yes, going on I there. can definitely hear the rhymes in that. Yeah. Um, so the translation is Tailfer, who sang right well, upon a swift horse. Upon a swift horse sang before the Duke of Charlemagne and of Roland and of Oliver and their vassals that died at Roncesvalles. Okay. So. So we can take two different things here from that one is that clearly as a story this is great in theatre mm-hmm. and it becomes part of a bigger legacy story later on of Taylor. Uh, but also this style in general the song of Roland is part of this style so either way there's a story of a mama who's come with the uh, with uh, the Normans to England yeah recite and he's so important he comes to recite poetry to them before battle yeah so it's either if it's not if they've got it wrong in the translation and he's just a man, yeah. there's also this other guy who's definitely there. So yeah. it could either it's either going to be one guy or two guys. Let's be real. Yeah. Um, and put it either way, both both points are very good for sleight of hand. Yeah. In terms of um, great sleight of hand imagery of, of the juggling guy in front <laughs> of the battle, <laughs> and also great sleight of hand that this that these guys are so important for battle mm. that they take them to war. Yeah. To keep everyone's spirits up. No, I'm with you. Okay, uh, is that the whole? Um, we've got one more, which is again. This is Carmen, Carmen, Carmen song. Mm. So music, music would have been so important. And I think though yeah, this is Latin, uh, Latin for us nowadays. Mm. But these were literally 
designed to be a Belton pubs. You know, they, they, they're, they're drinking songs. You know, they probably would have been there with the choruses so everyone can get in and involved. And that was the way that people told history. And, you know, it was it was designed to be a conveyance of news and um, get the victor's narrative out there. I mean, so we've got music, we've got these one slash two guys, this idea of maybe juggling, this, de- this idea of definitely singing. I mean, what are you thinking scoring-wise for... Oh, actually, that's that, no, that's mm-hmm. a point you've just said as well. Sleight of hand, juggling. They mentioned yes, the mama juggles. that's true. That is true. So they clearly were doing a, you know... They were doing something. Singing along and doing <laughs> juggling. Maybe doing some juggling. So this, the, the theatre style itself is this idea of the song of the event, right? That's what it is. Other than music, did they use... Like, while they were performing, we don't know if they used any... I don't know. Lighters in the I crowd think the way, or... <laughs> the way I imagine it is... Have you, have you read Name of the Wind? No. <laughs> well, do, firstly. Okay. But... Um, he wonderf- one of his characters wonderfully sets up the scene of what the minstrel on the road would have been like, the mama, the jongleur, the jongleur, mm-hmm. which is you'd have a lute or some kind of stringed instrument, just like we use the guitar now, mm-hmm. and this guy would come with his song to a pub, would set up and basically busk the song, all the rest of it. But you could see if it was a husband and wife doing this song. Yeah. And remember, this song was written and then basically said, okay, you learn it, now you go out and sing it. Yeah. You, know, you teach it to different people. If it's a husband and wife tree, you can see the wife with you know tambourine or dancing to it. If it's with your child, he might be juggling, depending on your act. That's true. So again, I think we need to think about this as a whole picture rather than just this one song. So what are you going to give it for score then? Um... I'm quite tempted to go higher because okay. it's it's more than we have had for a while. Yeah. I think. For the juggling, I'll give it a five. <laughs> I thought you... I, when you said higher, I was like, she's going to give it a nine. No, I mean, like, you know, we haven't had a, a, a um, God of Machine this time. No. <laughs> when we get a God of Machine, we can... We can um... I've got to admit, I'm, I'm, I'm saving ten for Restoration Comedy because <laughs> bloody hell, what are they doing with their sets? <laughs> uh, I think I'm going to give it... I like the juggling, don't get me wrong. Juggling with swords. Juggling with swords is, yeah, because I was going to say juggling is a little bit basic. I think most people can juggle within about 10 minutes. Oh, I can't. <laughs> Dyspraxic over here, absolutely. I tried for three hours and had no chance. <laughs> it wasn't one of your lockdown hobbies that you tried to do? Did you use scarves? Did you use the scarves though? No. Okay, so they say you've got to start with scarves. So you've got to like throw scarves because they're, they're slower. And you've got more time to catch them, so... Oh, nice, okay. Yeah. Perhaps I'll go back to it. Perhaps you'll see me in the next... (laughs) You've got three months. Mastering, (laughs) yeah. Do it. Uh, Okay, I think I'm going to give it... uh, I'm going to give it a four. So I'm going to be harsh. Okay, so moving on to Scandal, uh, which is our second category. Was there any juicy gossip surrounding this style, whether on stage or off? So what's happening... (sighs) Is it I mean, all war, war, war? Message, God, we message, to get, message. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a bit of war, 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 message, 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 message. Um, I think, I mean, again, it's really tough on this because I think both for Scandal and Ripple or Right, in, in this very early stage, basically it's comply or death. So mm. there's not going to be much kind of saucy whatever because most theatre styles and this kind of stuff is going to be pretty establishment. <laughs> Yeah, like the idea of Roman theatre. It's like, well, you can't rebel, otherwise we'll just put you in a gladiator ring. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also, I think we do need to remember, I I was thinking about this yesterday, that um, nowadays we have such a privilege of the fact that we can, we can be non-compliant and yet still live. 
Yeah. Not not just in terms of authoritarian government, but also just you were very happy for your government and for your king because otherwise you would be starving. Mm. Or, you know, theatre always thrives when time is good. So in like famine and the Black Death and this kind of stuff, theatre just, ex- you know, no one got time for that. No one. Yeah, so I think <laughs> it's, it's a tough one at the moment. So the, I got two things for that. Well, firstly, you know, history, victors, raw. I suppose there's a bit of scandal in that. <laughs> Second one is that most of these poems, this praise poetry, is written by priests. And I, you know, depending on how holier than thou they are, I bet there's a bit of sex going on in the poetry, which they couldn't, you know, <laughs> do, <laughs> do in person. Maybe that's, I didn't, was not expecting you to go there. <laughs> Actually, no, to be fair, I think they probably did have wives, but you know, godly mm. man, I bet there's going to be some, a, a few kind of cheeky looks in the poetry. The final one, which is just particularly for the Song of the Battle of Hastings, is that it's possible, and again, we don't necessarily know that, uh, it was commissioned by Matilda, who was uh, William the Conqueror's wife. And woman, commissioning. Ooh, scandal. Mind you, there's a lot which I like about Matilda. Firstly, uh, William was entirely faithful to her. No bastard children, which is basically unheard of for Norman kings. Mm. Which I think is quite cool. Also, she was mostly regent in England. So when, because he was... You wanted to be in Normandy, yeah. It sounds like there are a lot of... Pa- I mean, I'm not surprised because women are powerful, but you've got Emma of Normandy, you've got Matilda of Normandy. Yes. Where should you... Who would you most trust with um, with giving extra... And this kind of stuff. I think that particularly this time, marriages were partnerships in more ways than just, I'm going to marry you off so our kingdoms paternally will be aligned. Mm. But it's also in terms of, I need a partner in crime because I need someone else to help. Who's going to fall when I fall? Yeah. And also who, when I die, because nearly always the men died before their wives, Mm. who will preserve my kingdom to make sure my son takes over? Mm, That's true. So like the queen queen regents are pretty powerful at this time. Mm. We always think of, um, oh, sex is a moral rest of it. Not on your life around now, I don't think. No. Not in the way you imagine. Okay. So there's priests possibly writing sexy things in poems. Um, possibly. Possibly. And there's, did a woman commission a thing for her husband? I mean, so you've got two hypothetical questions there. Yeah, all right, all right. <laughs> you've got two questions is what you've given me. So I think it's going to be a low scandal score. Yeah, I know there's not much. I mean, how much also, I, I wonder if scandal because it's scandalous doesn't get written down this is true mm. again it, we're back into this problem of there are so few written sources right now how do we know that people were scandalized by it perhaps yeah. that was burnt by guy of Amiens because you know he wanted everyone to like his poetry yeah <laughs> so uh, but still we have to go somewhere so i'm gonna give it a 0.5 like you did last week no you gave it 0.25 when we did beowulf <laughs> I'm going to give it a 0.5. Yeah. Because I think there probably would have been scandal, particularly because if they're bringing this over to England. There'd be some sort of thing. Okay, so moving on to Ripple or Riot. Here we judge whether this style caused a ripple or a riot. How socially controversial was its existence and content? Did it spark wider conversations? So. So, well, clearly we have no idea really how socially controversial it was, Mm. this style was. However... It was, in general, written by high-level monks, abbots, bishops, all those kind of lot, the clergy who were literate. And depending on who paid them, it was intended as a form of propaganda to sway public opinion. Praise poetry was, in general, for um, particular events or battles or literally singing the songs of praise of someone. Hmm. See, it isn't entirely clickbait. No, it's not clickbait at all, actually. (laughs) Um, So in terms of Ripple or Write, it is entirely political, writing this so that people would hear the story from a particular perspective. Mm. 
you know, the, the power of fiction and the power of retelling a story in a particular way. I'd also say in terms of riot side of it, I'd say that the coming the Hasting guy, Prolio, mm-hmm. being sung at Easter three months after a new king when most of the country would just be waking up to wait, you what, mate? We what? 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 Yeah. You know, remembering kind of like how much, how long it will take for news to travel. The newly vassaled England would not have been popular, or you know, this this entirely was clearly if you if he was asked to write it in a hurry, they desperately needed some kind of form of pumping out propaganda yeah. for Easter tide celebrations. Also to point out, it must have been a bop ass tune to have survived <laughs> this long against that kind of rancor. <laughs> oh, I don't think I've ever heard you say the words bop ass tune, but it's true. It, it must have been a bop ass tune. Yeah. Uh, a bop ass bop ass tune <laughs> see I'm making it even more posh to prove that it, the way I said it the first time sounds alright <laughs> yes so I think that it it proves its power as a piece of work mm. that we still have it nowadays because I you know the vast majority of England would not want, have wanted to hear this poem yeah this song it would have been like a bit of rub in the face it's a bit like kind of like those deeply sexist raps which everyone still yeah. You know, still, you know, listens to in hums because they're so catchy. I mean, so I, I really yeah. do want to hear what the, what the tune of this was because it, you know, it clearly was. <laughs> yeah, it must have been, as you said, a bop ass tune. Uh, it wasn't popular to hear it, so it must have survived. So, what are you giving it, Mingma? I'm going to give it a five because this is Oof. the f- most controversial we've at all got ever. <laughs> so that far. is true. It is the most controversial. I think I agree with you, actually. Like, it is pretty controversial. I'm going to give it a five as well. Coming in and writing a song and distributing it to people. Like you say, propaganda of, like, look how great the victory was. And everyone's like, go away. You just invaded us. Yeah. I think it's also that on the kind of, you know, it's a scale, ripple or riot. Yeah. And I think that, you know, 50%, well, no, even like 20% of the population will be absolutely adoring it because they're the nobles who've just come in and the yeah. other 80% are going, hmm, 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 hmm. We're here, we're watching, but we're not happy. Yeah. No. Okay, so that takes us to a grand total of 10 for Ripple Riot. So finally, we're going to look at legacy. How has this theatre style influenced the future? Ha 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 ha. All right, uh, so minor stuff first, mm. which is Tailfer, this this whole story of Tailfer, which mm. started us on this exploration of praise poetry. The Song of the Battle of Hastings is the earliest source about this character. He's mentioned again in William of Malmesbury, Henry of Huntington, Geoffrey Gamer, and Robert Wace, which are in, though they're all kind of a hundred within a hundred years of each other, that's considered roughly contemporary in terms of our understanding nowadays it's so odd it's weird so he's mentioned again and again and again and actually he's then been set to a ballad by ludwig erland in 1816 uh which was then in 1903 orchestrated by strauss into an eight-part chorus like it was performed at the 2014 proms bbc proms oh right okay exactly and then the um as a theater style it's an early form of troubadours but also not really Mm. so you know in terms of direct relevance it does kind of die out because troubadours very much are more it feels like this is the early stage of troubadours as we know later on Mm. but the biggest i think legacy for it in its own way which is um that as we said most people take these poetry and use it as historical fact to reconstruct events yeah. Which is basically meaning that this as a theatre style has succeeded because the entire point was about influencing how people saw stuff. Spreading the message. And so it has influenced. So it has more of a historical influence rather than a theatrical influence if we're... That's not 
historical influences yeah. in the right term but yeah well i think well, i mean the really interesting point is that i studied normans at um bristol i used this source in my essays studying the normans uh, as as a history student, and I still did not think about the fact that this is Carmen's song until I got the hi- until I started looking at this and found out about Taylor. Yeah, that is how much it is engraved as history, mm. even though fact was. It's a piece of fiction which we're using as as fact now. Yeah, which is really quite weird when you actually think about it. It's a bit like using the crown to say this is exactly what happened. Yeah, and that's but also this is all that we have, and so mm. we have to use it. So in terms of how the theatre starts influence the future, I think it's probably the biggest one we have actually. Mm. Even though it doesn't actually feel that glamorous, it isn't really theatre. But in terms of legacy of impacting the future, bloody hell. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, that is true, and it has a little bit with the idea of the you know, Strauss and the 2014 proms. So what do you think you're going to give it as a score? Because if it's the biggest one... I think it has to be nine. <sighs> Shakespeare's ten, but actually... I mean, I wasn't going to before I started talking, but I convinced myself. <laughs> I mean, I gave up history when I was, what, 13. So I have the benefit of not having uh, the world of history. And I've mm. never heard of it. So in terms... But then in terms of... But you've heard about the Battle of Hastings. But I've heard about the Battle of Hastings. And we hear about the Battle of Hastings through this. So, oh, I'm kind of going back on my point. Okay, I'm going to join you with a nine. I'm just going to copy Mingma from now on. This is what this is. That's why I ask you first. <laughs> I get your score and I'm like, oh, I'm going to ask Mingma and get my own score. Um, So we are up to a total of 38. Oh, Interesting. Yeah. That isn't as much as I thought it was going to be. No, because for Beowulf, it was 39.5. Yeah. But ah, I think... She... They beat the Normans! <laughs> Sorry. I'm still on Team Ackley Saxon. <laughs> Maybe it was a thousand years ago. <laughs> yeah, grow up. Uh, I think it's the Ripple or Riot that let it down, to be honest. Okay. I feel like you are going to have some bias here about whether it deserves a place in the House of Rebels. I think no, because we gave them a hell of a big mm. score for Legacy in outside of theatre and this is a theatre podcast and the house of rebels is about the best of theatre and in the in that category no it's 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 the uh it's the sad person who's politically who's politically important but totally unpopular (laughs) (laughs) oh that's so sad he's pride of place at the oscars but never gets invited to the after party oh poor old fireside he's been alone in the house of rebels for two thousand years (laughs) uh not for much longer though i feel exciting stuff coming up that's it we've just covered songs of praise the norman conquest perhaps not all of it but as much as we can if you enjoyed this episode you can rate and review us and press subscribe to stay up to date on all the latest episodes have you got a nugget about songs of praise that you'd like to share we'd love to hear from you you can get in touch via social media on twitter and youtube we are at house of revels and on instagram we are house of revels with underscores so house underscore of underscore revels or be old school and drop us an email at house of revels podcast at gmail Thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time on House of Of Rebels. (laughs) Dembitsto. No, don't put that in. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, You know I will. You know it will be in there.